This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 10th of October 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my co-host, Jan. Here's your co-host, Chalice, Jan, actually. I know, I know. I'm sorry. Dave, I went to the other side of the world, and he didn't take me with him. So this is actually the first time that I've attended all three DataWorks summits, the the European one, the US one, and the APAC one. Um, I feel very privileged. Is it something we'd advise people to do? Maybe we should first uh, recapitulate a little bit and tell people that this episode is going to be about the <laughs> Sydney DataWorks summit. That's a good idea. Let's introduce the topic. <laughs> Which uh, uh, had uh, it took place what two weeks ago now? Three weeks by the uh, time this uh, airs, something like that. Three or four weeks by the time this airs, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and as Dave just uh, mentioned, he's been spending a lot of time at the summits. And maybe a quick question: There is this something you would advise people to do to go to every summit out there? So it's interesting. I was I was thinking about this actually on the on the plane on the way back. I remember sort of wondering to myself whether it was a, actually a really good use of time. Now, I do actually think it was a good use of time for me for, for two reasons. One is that I specifically wanted to meet some of the customers that were based out there, so it, it made sense mm-hmm. for me. But but also, um, I mean, we it do this in a somewhat different way to the way that the majority of people going to summits uh, would do. So, you know, I have a mixture of engagements during any given summit. I have sessions that I want to go to, sometimes sessions that I present, um, often customer meetings um, during the sessions uh, as well. So often there will be sessions that I want to attend that I can't because I've got, you know, a variety of conflicts um, you know, stand duty, all those other kinds of other things. Um, so from my perspective, actually having now been to three of these, a lot of the sessions that, you know, I missed once or missed twice, I've managed to catch up, you know, third time's a charm. Um, and also, you know, there are different, there are different sessions um, across each of the summits. Now, I would say there are a core set of sessions that are pretty consistent throughout and you can go and look at the agendas for yourself and you can imagine what those are. So things like the Hadoop 3.0, the yarn.next, the sort of uh, data lake built on Hive, you know, all of those kind of ones um, are sort of very, you know, consistent throughout and they they evolve a little bit. They, They tweak and tune here and there. Um, but they are sort of the core sessions that you can see repeated on all of them. But this was actually the first summit I'd had a chance to actually go to the Hadoop 3.1. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was the first chance that I'd had to actually see the Yarn past, present, and future one. So um, I think it's for me. It was I I wanted to go there anyway. I had to meet some customers, and it was a bonus to be able to attend some of the sessions. Uh, as well. Um, the other thing that I think is particularly interesting about the about going to each of the different summits is the customer sessions. Those are the things that are always going to be honestly radically different. Um, you know, you'll the European ones, you'll see, you know, large name brands doing interesting things. 
the US ones, you'll see, you know, the the powerhouses in in the big data world, the Ebay's, the Spotify's, um, sorry, um, the the LinkedIn's presenting, and then the APAC ones, you'll see sort of core brands out there. I mean, one of the sessions that we'll be talking about a bit later was was Telstra talking about their their launching of their um, security operations center built from the ground up using Apache Metron, which was just, you know, you won't find that on any of the other summits because that's that's their home summit. Um, so I think if you're interested in the customer sessions, then actually there really is a value to, to going to all three. If you're interested in the core sessions, um, you can get a lot from the the recordings um you know you can attend one and attend the the key ones that you want to any that you miss you know catch up on youtube um so i i think it's it 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 depends on what's most interesting to you one thing i would add though is uh the sessions from the dataworks summit were not recorded uh from the sydney dataworks summit so you won't find youtube links the slide share links are still all up there um, but you won't find the YouTube links, unfortunately. So it was a it was a smaller event. It was more intimate for that. You had more access to the presenters. Um, the the sort of the agenda was a bit tighter. You know, there was less sort of sprawl of oh, I could I could you know go and visit any number of these things. You know, the agenda was tighter. The coffee was much better <laughs> than any of the other DataWorks summits by far. Okay. Been to cup machines everywhere. Thoroughly approve. Yeah, I'd like to add to the uh, why you should go to all three because I'm not a hardware worker, so I don't have boot duty when I go to these things anymore. And uh, there's another reason why I would like to go to more. And in long time ago, I guess, uh, five years ago, I did go to the European and US one uh, as much as I could. The Sydney one didn't exist then at that time. And I would still want to do that. And if I had the time and, uh, yeah, monetary resources as well, I actually would. And the reasons for me are, one, yeah, the agendas. You've never had the time to to see everything you want to see. So having more occasions, definitely. And as you said, the local customers, that's always something specific. And tied to that, each of these markets has a different level of maturity, a different level of adoption of Hadoop. So when you're networking, which is a big part of these events, I mean, sure, go to all of these sessions, but... When there's not a session active, when there's uh, what you call that free time, spend yeah. time talking to people, not just on the boots, but also people sitting eating their sandwiches, because yeah, you can yeah. learn a lot about the mistakes people have made and how they solved it. And yeah. by going to multiple places, I mean, I know that the discussions I had in the US were totally different from the ones I've had in Europe. Yeah, And I can only imagine that the Sydneys will again have a different view on things, just by culture, way of looking at things, I don't know just uh, that thing so so from that point of view i would also very much want to do it the problem for me is yeah time and money basically (laughs) so if anybody out there wants to sponsor me i will gladly accept i can be bought but i can't be bribed it's not the same thing (laughs) so i just want to just want to add that because yeah from your point of view it's a bit of a special and i've lived that life too but uh, yeah, even for non-Horton uh, workers, Cloudaris, uh, Mapars, or whatever companies are the regular attend- attendees yeah. at Boots there, it does make sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. So yeah, I, 
thoroughly enjoyed my uh, my experience and uh, and yeah hopefully we will bring some of that experience to our audience today yes because i'm going to be interviewing mr dave today that's unfortunate for you but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well i don't care i'm gonna do it anyway so Fair mr enough. dave you went to the sydney summit how was your time there what did you do it was very good. Um, <laughs> so, good coffee, I heard. <laughs> yeah, good coffee. Good, good. Co- I mean, you know, not not amazing coffee, but actual real coffee. Um, I was I was impressed by that. So the first session um, I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about was uh, the Hadoop 3.0 session. So this was um, presented by Sanjay Radia. Uh, just uh, before you go on, uh, dear listeners, uh, we'll, be, we'll be doing this by looking at the slides, uh, slides which are on SlideShare while Dave is talking about it. From time to time, we'll call out which slide we're looking at, just if you want to follow along with us. Indeed, indeed. Um, so really, you know, the, this was this was a very good session. It covered a lot of content, and in fact, the uh, the presenter at the very beginning said, "We're going to be running very quickly through a lot of this. <laughs> There's a lot of things that have changed in 3.0. We're going to be skimming across the top, and there are other sessions that go into more depth. And in fact, we we will be talking later on about uh, one of those in uh, specific sessions." Um, so the first thing that was kind of interesting is that, you know, why why have a major version number change? Um, and I'd heard this explained very quickly before, but he went into a bit more depth. Essentially, there are a number of change between, changes between the 2.x and the 3.x branch. Um, and any of them sort of individually probably don't really require a major version number change but i mean the ones that are that are that were bought out were there was just a lot of code in in trunk a lot of feature code in trunk that wasn't seen ready for uh, for just easily um including in the 2.x branch um, a lot of sort of small to medium sized features that just didn't immediately fit in the 2.x branch would require some changes somewhere along the line, and so it, it it was code that was building up in trunk that hadn't got into a release branch. Um, there's a, a major push to a you know JDK upgrade. We're we're finally moving to a JDK that's actually current. Well, it's uh, almost which, obsolete, I think. Well, yeah, indeed. Um, <laughs> and we're we're actually you know there are some con- sort of operational concerns and considerations when you're doing that. Yeah, it kind and of surprised me that they don't see that as a reason to go for 3.0 because upgrading JDK to uh, 1.8, yeah, uh, that's going to break a lot of things. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> I would expect. indeed. At least if you're using but, 1.8 with the, the things that 1.8 brings you. I mean, yeah. 1.8 has some compatibility with 1.7, of course, and you can just make things compile 1.8 but still work 1.7 if that yep. makes any sense but that's yep. not i'm when i read the the the, the release notes that they're bringing out of the, the mailing lists they're actually taking advantage of the new stuff that 1.8 uh, brings and that will break stuff very much so very much so um and then then there are just re- some really big features that are that are coming uh, that are in the code base that have been in trunk for some time that you know, erasure coding is the the classic example. Yep. I mean, Yahoo Japan have been testing that for. Uh, I mean, when I say testing, I mean using production <laughs> um, for probably 
it's got to be over a year now. I think they've been using. So they've they've got you know their own special branch of 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 the code that they're using, um, and you know take all of these things together, and yeah, it, it's clearly um, it's clearly a case for um, moving things to to a, a brand new version number. And there's also mm-hmm. you know minor changes like changing the, uh, the the port layouts, which again, as you were saying earlier, is one of those things that's going to break a lot of things because mm-hmm. certain things expect we see certain other things on other ports and start shuffling that around and yeah, chaos ensues. Yeah, because mainly if I see it's a 2.x again, then okay, I'll just upgrade and maybe have to fit a little bit to optimize it better, but it should all keep on running. If I do an upgrade and at the end of the upgrade, things just don't work or aren't reachable anymore because ports have changed then i would expect a major number of uh, change just yeah. to, to warn me careful this is a big change yeah indeed and so here we are with with 3.0 um and if we we look at so that the key features that um that are coming into this are sort of erasure coding and hdfs and we'll talk a little bit like but about that as we go through um so additions to yarn so long-running services mm-hmm. Um, enhancements to the scheduler, uh, better isolation and use of Docker, um, UI tweaks within Yarn as well, a new Yarn UI. Um, lots of, basically lots of content that's been in trunk for some time. And then, as we mentioned, JDK 8 um, and uh, all of the newer dependent libraries. And actually, again, as you say, making use of a lot of the, the newer functions that are available in JDK 8. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, slide three. We're still slide three. It's got to be a long episode, guys. Uh, it says something there: ephemeral ports between brackets and yeah. Compatible. So that, that that's mean? just that's port. Ch- that's the port changes that I mentioned, changing the the, the port numbers to yeah. uh, ephemeral would indicate something like uh, ports going away and changing on the fly. So it's it's more about uh, it's the range of ports that you can use for ephemeral services. Um, ah, so it's okay. moving them out of yeah. the. Um, out of the lower numbers, but we'll get to that as we go through. Okay. We're now on well, slide five. There's one thing though that is missing there, and I have to put my Azure hat on because Hadoop 3.0 also has support for Azure Data Lake Store, and I really like that. Fair enough. <laughs> but that's 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 code that's been languishing in trunk. Exactly, and I'm finally getting out <laughs> there. So we've been waiting for that one. Yeah, yeah. But you're on slide five. Excuse me for being slow. That's okay. So. Um, that, so really here just it's it's all just outlined all the different things that are changing um and the nice thing about this deck and in fact a couple of the other decks is that you'll see um some urls that say things like hadoop 11264 that's the jira number for that particular feature and for those that haven't looked at this sort of thing before um, that's a really, really handy way. If if you want to know more about a particular feature and you see one of these, uh, these JIRA numbers, you can click on that and it will take you to usually the JIRA that contains the design documentation for that feature, um, a discussion that's happened on that JIRA between the developers that are looking at that, and probably a lot more detailed information around, you know, checking, verification, benchmarking, um, other discussion around the approach for it and that sort of thing. So, but, but, but Dave, sir, these are Jira. This is a developer talk. Am I going to understand this if I'm not a developer? So I'm not a developer either, and I still get <laughs> a lot of use out of them. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I, I don't get as much use out of the detailed conversation, but the design documentation and the intent behind the feature yeah. is very, very valuable. But yeah, if you're a developer, you'll get much more from it than, than I do. And in fact, here on, on slide five, cloud, uh, cloud storage is called out here, support for Azure Data Lake, Yay. S3 consistency and performance. <laughs> so there's there's other things here, but... Let's not spend too much time on the agenda. Otherwise, we'll introduce everything before we've talked about it. So um, moving on to slide six. Um, and yes, Oracle's, uh, these, Oracle's JDK 7 was end of life, um, April 2015. And yet we've we've still been using it uh, uh, up until... Uh, it's only about two years ago. That's fine. Yeah, not really. Anyway, so moving to JDK 8... Uh, and moving to use the, the latest features, so you can see them all laid out here. None of them mean anything to me specifically, but Lambda expressions, mm-hmm. stream API, security enhancements, I understand that, and performance uh, enhancements for hash maps, IO, NIO, etc. I'm sure that means lots and lots to people out there. Well, uh, but that's uh, something. I mean, Lambda expressions, you know, that's just how you write your programming code. Just the mm-hmm. way developers work, so that shouldn't really introduce any breakage. Uh, security enhancements, yeah, that can definitely break certain stuff if uh, certain bugs get fixed, and people have been working around those bugs because they're just a little bit faster. Yeah, Stream API is uh, pretty new, if I understand correctly, and of course the main important thing is performance enhancements because that should give you a nice speed up. Yeah, and of course those are the things that you know will will not be backwards compatible. It'll be one one dot eight and beyond only. So, yeah, moving on. So this is the uh, ephemeral port changes. Um, Uh, Hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, Last part of that slide, it says Hadoop 2.6.2.6.x, JDK 6.7.8, Hadoop 2.7.x, 2.8.2.9, JDK 7.0 later, Hadoop 3.0, JDK 8. So Hadoop 3.0 is not out yet. It's out in beta, alpha, whatever, not in the release version. So where are we today? So beta slash GA is still estimated to be Q4 of 2017. Now we should be clear that that's the Apache release. That's not necessarily uh, distributions. Yeah. But if I'm not mistaken, we're still using 2.7 in most distributions, aren't we? Yeah, indeed. So are you... And maybe I just give a response if you can from a Hortonworks perspective. Are we going to skip two eight two nine in the in the distributions and move directly to a three zero three one, or is it going to be some yeah. intermediate step? I think I think that is almost certainly the case. Okay. Um, there doesn't seem to be. I mean, we as Hortonworks, I know that certain elements of uh, two eight and two nine have been backported um, into uh, the current distribution to, to get that additional functionality, but there doesn't seem to be much appetite to go, you know, move the whole distribution on to a 2.8, a 2.9 based branch. Um, yeah. Most of the focus is on three now. It's also something in open source that you see more often that when a major change is happening, that a few releases in, in front of there are mostly stabilization, bug fixes, security fixes, of course, but not really exactly. any new stuff anymore because that's already been scheduled for the next big release. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it's, it's the natural life cycle of projects like that. Yeah, yeah I, maybe I'm pointing out stuff that's uh, obvious for everybody, but uh, I mean, I've, I've had 
discussions with customers that ask me about these things. So I'm just trying to put myself in. Uh, no, no, it's a good point. Yeah, you always get the question of, well, why why don't you have the latest version yeah. of you know pick your favorite elephant um, in the room, and the answer <laughs> is well. Don't don't ask me about the latest version. What's the particular piece of functionality yeah. you want? Because exactly. the chances are, okay, the, the the version number that you see shown on the release notes may be earlier, but the chances are the piece of functionality you've got, if it's yeah. you know particularly useful or particularly important, it's already been backported into the current release. And I understand it makes it a little bit more difficult to track yeah. down you know exactly what we're doing but that's just that's the nature of these releases and that's the nature of distributions yeah i mean they try to put a kind of structure in it but uh, yeah there's always going to be exceptions that's uh, inevitable when you put a rule down you're also putting exceptions down yeah indeed so uh, moving on to slide seven and here we've just got a nice long list of port numbers and their changes um you know, if you're particularly interested in the port numbers and the changes, this slide is going to be very important to you. If not, it, then not. Um, I would expect, and of course, we're we're still yet to see this uh, fully played out. But a lot of these changes should be taken care of uh, by your chosen distribution. Now, the difference, of course, is have you written additional stuff around whatever work you've done and whatever you've deployed. Um, that you know natively hooks into certain port numbers. In which case, obviously, you're going to have to make those changes. So we were, um, you know, talking about upgrading uh, earlier, and uh, you should be able to take a, a 2.x branch cluster, upgrade that uh, to a 3.x branch, and everything in terms of the core services should all work. You know, the ports should change, everything should shuffle around, and uh, you should just have a, a brand shiny new uh, 3.x environment. There should be no need to do fresh reinstalls or anything like that. But uh, we will see when the, when it yeah. gets finally released and the distros do their work. Yeah, but as you say, it's the customization that... Uh, People themselves have written around their Hadoop installation. It Customization. It will make sense to have some kind of uh, a beta test internally to just have a small cluster set up on-prem or in the cloud or wherever you want to do it and just see if it uh, behaves as expected. Indeed. And of course, everybody has, uh, what do you call that again, the, uh, backwards tests, uh, regression testing set up automatically, yep. so that shouldn't be an issue, right? Or everyone should, at least. That's what I said. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right, so moving on to slide eight now and class path isolation. Um, this really is just you know, a lot of the internals. There's been a lot of um, leak dependencies between um, different versions that different components have shipped within uh, a distribution and separate, um, you know, separate isolation of the class path should make this a lot easier in the future. There's a bunch of JIRAs um, around HGFS, Hadoop, and Yarn that can um, sort of take you to more information on that. This also, I think, is uh, related to the new functionality that's coming where you can have multiple versions of the same uh, application running in your Hadoop stack, right? That's indeed correct. Because at the moment, because of this leakage, it's very unpredictable if uh, if when you install a new version, if it's going to be nicely isolated or be spread across uh, different uh, directories. And cleaning yep. this up makes this uh, easier or possible even, I guess. Yep. 
Yep, indeed. So, moving on now. Um, so, we're going through slide 10 and onwards. Um, this is just talking about uh, how replication is done today on HGFS. Um, and then we're going into the uh, the description around erasure coding. So, erasure coding, for those that, uh, that aren't familiar, is essentially using the same sort of um, algorithms that are used within RAID controllers, um, same sort of things there, to have data blocks and parity blocks. So in the event of a failure, a node failure, a disk failure, you can recreate the missing blocks. Now, Hadoop and HDFS traditionally does that by just replicating data three times. Um, again, it's not just for resiliency, it's also for um, performance. So you can have you know the same job that needs the same or different jobs that need the same data can have a, a choice of multiple data nodes that they can run on. Um, the downside to that is that you know if you're replicating data three x, then you need three x the storage space for you know whatever data you're storing. Erasure coding reduces essentially reduces that storage overhead to just one point five x uh, through the clever use of maths. Um, Upside is, of course, less storage overhead. Downside, of course, is there's uh, more more compute required to read and to recreate all of these uh, data blocks on the fly. Um, turns out that actually um, there's less of a, a performance penalty than I think a lot of people were expecting, at least in certain use cases. But there are some interesting things that are that are hinted towards on this uh, particular session um, that are uh, more impacted. And the particular one that I'm thinking of is network bandwidth, yep. um, because you're essentially recreating these data blocks across network uh, across nodes uh, within HDFS. Um, there's a lot more network bandwidth needed. So it's not just the compute overhead. There's a lot of network overhead as well. Yeah, I'm looking through the slides here, and uh, there's like over a dozen slides on this now. When I saw this, this is one of these basic uh, Hadoop uh, sessions that you get on every uh, summit, uh, obviously. When I saw this one almost a year ago in Munich, I guess, Germany anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, there were, those slides weren't there. So if people have seen the session already, I would suggest you take a look at this uh, slide deck because it has a lot of information on the technical implementation, the, the things that it causes, the things that you have to take care of, even has some benchmark numbers on there. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is very interesting, actually. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth looking at. I'm going to skip all the way forward to about slide 20, in fact, exactly to slide 20, which is really just talking about erasure coding implications. Yeah. Um, now, the the things that are uh, highlighted here are the fact that the reads and the writes are remote now, and they are cross rack. So it's not you're you're losing, you know, some of the benefits of data locality uh, by by using erasure coding. Um, reconstruction is very network intensive. Um, and you know the, there are a lot of things that happen within this that you need to think very carefully about how you use erasure coding. And then in bold at the bottom of the slide, as it says, it works very, very, very well and is definitely recommended for archival or sort of cold data sort of style use cases. 
That being said... Yeah, before um, you move on, I just want to uh, mention that erasure coding isn't replacing the three times replication of standard HDFS. It's just a, another way, another tier, if you like, of HDFS storage, right? Very much so. So think of erasure coding um, and the ability to use erasure coding as being exactly the same as you can apply um, HDFS's native uh, encryption. So you can select a path within HDFS and you can say, I want that path you know, erasure coded. Mm. Um, you don't have to erasure code the entire HDFS. You can be very selective about which zones or which areas of HDFS you want to erasure code. Yeah, yeah. So that's why it's, it is perfect for that sort of archive, cold yeah, yeah, data, yeah. cold data, warm data, hot data. Yeah, you can cool. have on um, core HDFS. You can have it on fast rotational. You can have it on SSD. Yeah, cold data, standard, less price, less cost, but a little slower in usage. Indeed, indeed. Although, as I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> if you move on to the next slide, it turns out that actually there's there's not as much of a um, uh, a performance difference as people were perhaps expecting. So. This is um, the, sort of the next set of graphs or erasure code performance. Um, and so here we've got the, the right performance. So you've got um, the sort of the standard 3x replication um, through to the, the standard HDFS RAID, the new Java coder, and the, the ISAL coder. I think we have any notes on that. These were skipped through fairly quickly. Um, but what's more interesting is the, the slide after that, slide 22. So here we have a direct comparison between erasure-coded queries, and this is one of the TPC, uh, this TPCH query, um, versus standard 3x replication. And you can see there's actually, there is a perceptible difference between mm -hmm. the response time from erasure-coded data versus replicated data. But it's it's nowhere near the sort of I, I don't I mean I was expecting sort of you know fifty percent performance hit or something like that and really you're looking at I don't know depending on the use case maybe ten twenty percent do we think here Not depends either. on the depends on the case it varies from what from um, across the different queries so there's only query three and query six that are yeah. called out here but it, it's incremental it's not really duplicate double or triple it's just no uh, yeah. no. It's it's a far smaller percentage, but as the presenter called out during this, the thing that is not shown here is the increase in network bandwidth mm -hmm. used to get this. Now, I would be personally really really interested if uh, if we could get some stats on that as well, because it's it's one thing to say there's a lot more network bandwidth, but until you can actually say how much network bandwidth, it's very difficult to to put these sort of numbers into context, but all we can do right now is just say, be aware of it. If you're interested in it, then you know, start testing it mm -hmm. uh, with uh, with sort of some of the, the alpha, late alphas and betas that are out there. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but it says Spark TCP, sorry, TPCH. Uh, so this is a Spark test, but TPC is a SQL Hive test. Uh, explain to me. 
I I have all the information that is on this slide. In front of you. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, with SlideShare, um, you don't really get slide notes. Yeah. You just get. Well, the... let me rephrase it then. It doesn't look like these are tests of just looking at like a, a DD test, which we do on a normal disk. No. It's actually using layered products on top of it, be it Spark or Hive or even both in this case. So even if network is uh, being used a lot more, which in my when I hear that I think okay network contention might happen so other stuff needs to wait because this replication or I shouldn't say replication this recalculation of missed uh, parity bits need to be done but if this is using layered products like HyperSpark then if they still give you a almost equal response time then apparently Net uh, is able to cope with uh, the extra network traffic out there yeah, yeah, I think the, the the comment was you're going to need 10 gig E, but you don't need anything fancy beyond that. Okay. So, but uh, 10 gig E is becoming standard between the. Notes. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I think I I think it's it's fairly accurate to say it's been standard certainly for new environments that have been deployed for probably a good a good year or two now. Uh, I don't know. Top of rack switches, yes, but between the single uh, nodes, I've seen a lot of of gigabit. Still, really? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things have been running for a couple of years already, right? I mean, uh, I, but I was saying new, new deployments. Yeah, maybe it's fine last year then. Two years, I think, it's a bit of a stretch. But, uh, yeah, okay. I guess the UK is so much more advanced than Holland. Well, <laughs> no comment. Okay, so we'll, there's, there's a few more things about some of the difference between if, you've, uh, if you kill extra data nodes didn't seem to make uh, too much of a difference. Well, at a certain um, point, it's going to make a difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At a certain point, it will definitely make a difference. But there are lots of lots of good information about the the community that's been working mm-hmm. uh, around this. So HortonWorks, Yahoo Japan, Cloudera, Intel, Huawei have all been sort of uh, working together on Erasure coding. It's it's considered to be feature complete, um, and it really is just the um, the current focus all around stress and endurance testing and making sure that it's it's absolutely bulletproof which of course it needs to be okay so moving on we're now going to talk about yarn enhancements um so here we've got um starting off at really slide 26 um the core sort of enhancements that come with yarn around um, now prioritization or within queues so applications um, within a queue having uh, being able to prioritize between them and also now inter queue priorities now some of this is starting to get um, a little I, I need to spend more time understanding exactly what some of this means so we've got affinity and anti-affinity um, so running certain um, certain workloads on um, certain racks and also running uh, jobs together on the same sort of nodes uh, and also anti-affinity in the example given here is HBase region servers so making sure that your um, uh, you, you know, your workloads aren't run uh, on the same nodes that you're running your HBase region servers so being able to more more carefully control really where your uh, where your workloads, where your services are being run, is is seems to be one of the core elements here. Yeah, it has of course an effect on secu- on, on your security, not security, uh, but um, if power goes out on a rack, you want to make sure that uh, your racks have dual power supplies and are s- 
rack one has power supply A, B, rack two has C, D. That way you can kind of keep it up when things go wrong. And it also allows you to kind of spread out that uh, network uh, if you have a standard star topology of your network that can also help you yeah, flatten your network's uh, usage a bit. Indeed. Um, so there's there's a lot more kind of excruciating detail as as we go through this. Um, I would I would probably recommend if you want to know more around the scheduling enhancements specifically, um, then there's there's a there's a session that we'll be talking about a bit later, um, specifically on on the yarn elements. So some of this is sort of a, a prelude, if you like to um, some of the, the, the latest session. So we'll perhaps skip over some yeah. of this quite lightly and, and tackle it in a little bit more detail as we go to the next session. Um, but, you know, moving forward, slide 28, you know, long-running services. Mm-hmm. For those that have been in this space for a while, um, you know, you may have dealt with something called Slider. Um, Slider was a, a separate sort of service that was designed to support long-running services on Yarn. Um, essentially, you know, slider is dead. Long live slider. <laughs> essentially, the code has been um, subsumed now into uh, Yarn as a whole. So it's just another part of Yarn now. Um, and again, the core core pieces of this are you know, running running things like HBase, like Storm, um, as long running services within Yarn's. Um, I guess Jan's control management, yeah, and don't yeah. forget the Docker support, of course. Indeed, indeed, and this is becoming uh, more interesting now. The the Docker support is not really called out uh, too much within this. Mm-hmm. Um, as we move through the the slides, again, you know. Um, Things like uh, recognition of long long running services for you know, preemption, container reservation, auto restarting of containers, um, you know your own service and application support, uh, and upgrade support. Um, dynamic. One of the things that was quite interesting was dynamic container configuration. So um, only asking for just enough resources to get things started. But actually, be able to adjust the the requirements at runtime. Now, just to be clear, this is primarily around uh, CPU. It's a lot more difficult to uh, change the container configurations for uh, memory uh, alive within uh, within something that's running. But that is that is does seem to be where they want to take this. Um, and then. Now, sort of moving on to slide 30, we've got kind of discovery of services. And so there is actually now a service discovery um, within Yarn driven driven by basically a local DNS. Mm-hmm. So the way that this was explained was, um, you know, this it's not that your, your data lake would be running your corporate DNS. Um, it would be, this would be a, a subset of the, the DNS that would be purely used for service discovery. Um, and would be used as such. Um, so now a more powerful yarn, we've got sort of things like elastic resource model, which again is able to, to tune things uh, up and down uh, as it's running rather than needing to uh, restart services to once you've made these changes. Um, 
we've got um, better use for container resizing. And again, very useful for, for long-running services. You can tune down the container sizes during quiet periods and tune up the container sizes during busy busy periods, again, without having to you know, restart services when you make these changes. This doesn't really uh, take away the, I would say, need to have queues or, or yarn labels that have nodes with high memory, nodes with slow memory, so I put my no, space on that. But no. that still exists, right? This doesn't very much it. so, yeah. yeah. It's it's very much um, building on uh, building on those core concepts. The, in fact, the whole 3.x um, picture is evolution, not revolution. It's not making fundamental changes, at least in my, my experience, my impression. It's not making fundamental changes you know, completely breaking the way things used to work and moving to a fundamentally new paradigm. It's about taking the the stable, established what works today and just building incremental benefits on top of that. So, um, you know, actually now on slide 32, it, it's brought out here. Um, we're looking at uh, this resource isolation. So adding uh, disk and network resource isolation so that, um, you know, we've had this through, um, sort of manually tacked on, but with the use of C groups, but now it's get, getting properly integrated into uh, into Yarn, um, and then yes, finally the ability to support um, launch Docker containers alongside uh, existing processes. So um, you know, packaging those those Docker containers uh, and isolating them from other workloads that are happening within Yarn. So there's then a few slides on uh, Docker on Yarn and um, the somewhat interesting um, slide on slide 33, uh, yeah, picture on slide 33 mm -hmm. is essentially you've got an underlying Yarn um, cluster. So you've got your, your Hadoop cluster there and you're running some Hadoop applications on that Yarn cluster. You can then spin up some Docker containers and, in those Docker containers, you could run TensorFlow, or in those Docker containers, you could run Yarn, and then you could run services on top of Yarn. So, yes, Yarn on Yarn. I'm, I'm not sure I see that many organizations that will find that particularly <laughs> useful, um, but it is kind of fun and kind of interesting that you can do it. And oh. I know it's something that Hortonworks makes a lot of use of, um, essentially for their uh, their internal testing of uh, of Hadoop internally, so they make do a lot of yarn on yarn. They spin up multiple clusters within clusters to to do that testing. Now I can see a use for uh, yarn inception, as it's called, when people looking at upgrading. As mm -hmm. I have my cluster. Let's put ten percent to the side to test a new version in my existing cluster. That way, it stays within the, the the management of the people that are running the Hadoop cluster and know what they're doing, presumably. It might make that a little bit easier. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Because, I mean, the yarn that's running inside the Docker containers it has no relation with the yarn outside of it, so you can have different versions there, right? Yeah, Still indeed. Still isolated. Yep. Um, and so, you know, now coming on to, there's a brand new UI that's uh, far less ugly than the old yarn UI. Sorry, it's just it's not the way ugly. it is. <laughs> it really is. But the new one's far nicer. And uh, there's been a lot of work that's gone into that um, and a lot of customer input that's helped shape that quite nicely. Um, other things, so resource profiles, 
Um, it's quite light on that. I would recommend looking at the uh, Yarn 3926 to give you more information about the actual functionality there. Yarn Federation is now coming into um, uh, into Yarn, uh, into the 3 dx branch. And as it says, this, the idea is here, how do we scale to not just thousands of nodes, but now tens of thousands of nodes? And cl- so essentially clusters of clusters which appear to appear as a single cluster to an end user. So they don't have to care about the underlying complexity. Um, next piece is around compatibility um, and the upgrade process. So yes, you'll be able to upgrade from two to three. Um, you'll be able to do rolling upgrades. Um, you will need to do um, you know, rewriting of scripts. Um, remove sort of things that have been deprecated. There will be certain you know, bug fixes that, are, that have been applied to previous branches that will be incompatible with the, the new way of things. So just be aware of all of that. And then there's you know, some additional information around some of the testing and validation that's gone on. Uh, and then, you know, a quick summary slide at the end. So yeah, just before you go there on the compatibility and upgrades part, I do think it's noteworthy to say that there's going to be a rolling upgrade from two to three. Mm. Now, considering these are Hortonworks slides, I'm assuming this means when you're using Hortonworks distribution, I'm not assuming that they are taking responsibility for the other distributions out there. No, no, it will be rolling upgrades supported using Ambari. So if you're okay, using Ambari, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. If you're doing an Ambari based, uh, Distribution, so that's quite um, cool to have a major upgrade in a rolling upgrade fashion. Very, very cool. I mean, we'll can't see how that. Yeah, it, it definitely can't be easy, um, and it'll be interesting. I'm sure there will be you know, a couple of little snags along the way, but uh, it's very, very useful to have that that core capability. And then that's it, pretty much. Summary slide, um, giving you uh, the high level view as of to what's changed. And uh, it was it was a very very good session, giving people a lot of information. Um, we've uh, you know skimmed over it reasonably quickly. Um, <laughs> the, the session itself was probably double that sort of length. So if you if you want to go into more depth, you know follow the Jiras, watch the session as it was delivered uh, at one of the other summits. And uh, yeah, very good session. Would thoroughly recommend it if you're you're looking at the future of of where where three dot is heading. Yeah, one thing I was uh, for the yarn three dot uh, part that I kind of well expected was a is a big word, but something that people have been asking for is having yarn queues on uh, network uh, bandwidth and stuff like that. Because at the moment, uh, yarn queues are still CPU memory only, right? Yeah, so that's the that's the isolation piece that's um, that. It's coming with three that also adds uh, network uh, and disk I/O to um, the two metrics. Okay, so that's in there as well. But that mm, wasn't mm. The, the slide wasn't clear for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I say, if you want more information, definitely watch the session, and again, definitely follow up on some of the jiras that we both we talked about and the ones that are listed in the slides. I'll, I'll just call Dave. I mean, his mobile number will be in the show notes. <laughs> Dear God, no. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, very good. On to the next. Next. Um, so the next next session I attended was Spark R best practices, and uh, honestly, I attended this because I wasn't quite sure what to attend during this particular section. And uh, Casey talks are always fun. So the slide share uh, says Yang Bo Lang. Um, 
Casey actually developed the slides with Yangbo. Um, Casey actually presented at this particular session. Um, it was one of the things that I've I've seen a couple of uh, Casey Stellar's sessions now. One of the things that's quite amusing that he always does at the start is so Casey's background is data science. He comes from a initially a consulting background. He's now in engineering, but his his heart is very much data science through and through, and. At the start of every one of his talks, he asks people to put their hands up if they're data scientists, put their hands up if they're data engineers, um, put their hands up if they're in sort of analytics or BI, and now put your hands up if you're managers of one of these things. And uh, he, he explained after he did that poll, and for, for those that were interested, the majority of people there were kind of data engineers, data scientists, um, that sort of thing. And there were some managers, but he says over the years that he's been doing these kind of talks, the, it used to be very early on, the people attending them were all the managers and the people you know, running those teams, whereas nowadays it's a lot of the actual teams themselves. So I thought that was, that was kind of interesting, kind yeah. of an interesting shift that's happened over time. Yeah. Was expect, expecting that. Yeah. Um, so... I think Jon, this is this is going to be far, of far more uh, use and interest to you than it is uh, is to me. So I'm going I'll uh, defer to you for a lot of the the detail of the the content here. But essentially, you know, a nice sort of introduction first to R and Spark R, some of the pros and cons uh, between them. You know, R very very rich ecosystem, obviously open source, some some powerful visualization exists within it mm-hmm. um the the concept of data frames in it which are nicely aligned to what happens within spark as well and it's it's got a strong academic background it's it's taught at schools and yeah. uh, statistics and computer science and that sort of thing but you know the, the cons around it it's largely single threaded uh, everything that you do has to fit into a single uh, single nodes memory which of course all data does right <laughs> well, one sixty-four K is enough for everybody, right? Exactly, exactly. But, uh, yeah, it's very important. R, it's it's an old language. It's been here for ages, one would think, but it's still used very much. And actually, in a future episode, we'll be talking to a data scientist, and we'll be talking about uh, languages used in data science: R versus Python versus Scala, and all that thing. And R is still, yeah, a very important part of the whole uh, statistics and uh, predictive uh, world. Yeah. Now, one thing I would like to point out is, yes, R is single-threaded, but, and I'm going to put my Microsoft hat on for a, just a moment here, uh, Revolution R was taken over by Microsoft a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and at that point, some stuff got open-sourced, and there is actually ways of now using the old Revolution R uh, API, and that means you just prefix your most of the um, function calls with Rx that allow you to do multi-threaded R. So there is some breadth, so some some flexibility there now, but mm-hmm. it does still have to fit in a single machine because uh, R at this point, as far as I know, it doesn't go uh, multi-node unless you actually shell out some money for R server. But R server is basically R on Spark, and it's what this thing is about. So <laughs> fair enough. So Spark R. Um, it is just the 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 marriage of uh, Spark plus R, so an R front end for Apache Spark, 
um, the sort of data frames and data frame based APIs um, have wrappers between them, so they behave just like the R data frames. Um, it uses MLlib, um, and you have many of the um, APIs consistent between R and the, and and uh, and what's done within Spark already. Now, that doesn't mean that every single CRAN package out there is replicated. It's not quite that uh, uh, not quite that advanced, but it just means that a lot of the the concepts that you would want to use in R can be used within Spark R. Yeah, some stuff will never get ported over, of course, because a lot of things of R actually work on the fact that it is single-threaded. Yeah. That things will work anymore. As far as I know, the whole data frame, data frame wrapping is important so that you can actually use the scheduling of Spark with that data set, because the data frame data set knows how it can be split up into little parts and spread across your executors. That's important. And the main advantage here for R people is that uh, ML API mimics uh, your R code. So if you're used to writing R code, you should be able to write almost identical code and just run it on Spark cluster. And mm-hmm. we'll see in a couple of more slides more details on that. Indeed. So there's a, a quick sort of diagram about there it is. the architecture. <laughs> And the thing to note here actually is that uh, if you look at if you're looking at this slide and hope you are uh, on the left side you see the user actually submitting R code in a Spark context to the R to the Spark system. But if you look at the total right, the executors on the on the worker nodes actually execute R code. So at that point you're back to that single threaded or perhaps multi threaded uh, revolution extensions. But again, that's R code. There, there has been some confusion and I was actually confused at a certain point if uh, the R code is going to be transpiled, translated into Scala or Java or PySpark. Mm-hmm. But as you can see here, they're just using the, 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 the data frame set concept to do the scheduling and spreading and keeping everything working. But the R code is still what's being uh, executed at the end. Yeah. At least that's how I read this slide. Yeah, yeah. So there's then some some sort of coverage of the the overall data science workflow, um, and which anyone involved in data science <laughs> would be. In fact, anyone involved in manipulating data should be fairly familiar with. I like the little understand suffix under the gray box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a never-ending cycle. Um, but really, um, it then starts to build on. You know, what are the the three sort of typical uh, problems that Spark R and R is is applied to? So these are then grouped into sort of big data, small learning, partition aggregate, and large-scale machine learning. Um, so this is then all largely beyond me. <laughs> yeah, they're just giving some more information for our people. If you if you go in R, this will tell you how you can yeah move over, I guess. But you just skip on a, a, a slide there, slide number nine, where they say why Spark R and R. Why not just remove R completely and everybody should work with Spark R? Mm. And that's actually an important slide for me because. Big data doesn't always mean big data sets. And yeah. if your data set is able to fit in a single uh, chassis, then you don't need Spark, you don't need clusters, you can just do it on, you don't have to have a Hadoop cluster to do uh, statistics. And a lot of stuff just possible in R, so R is not going away. 
Yeah, very but much if, so. But if you need more scale, then now with the Spark Car, you have the ability, and these slides just show you how the, uh, yeah, how you move over. Well, if you're looking to do certain operations, well, these are the function calls you can use, and so on, with, uh, with nice examples and everything. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of the a lot of things that uh, are covered really. As, as Jan says, it's designed for people that already have a lot of our knowledge, are looking to understand how uh, how these things play together, how to port your knowledge across to Spark R, what some of the deltas and differences are. So, again, largely beyond me, but really <laughs> quite useful if you're if you're in that space and you're wanting to uh, parallelize what you do. Yeah, and actually looking at slide fourteen, it's a little graph of uh, how how fast a Python, Scala, and Spark R data frame work. Now they don't give much much details on what they were testing here, but I do think it's quite remarkable that the Scala data frame, which is the compiled language which you expect would be the fastest one, is actually the slowest one. Now the Spark R data frame does have a larger variance, so it could be uh, slower than a Scala, but on average, it's just a little bit faster than the Scala data frame. And the Python data frame is actually winning everything. So that's really not what I would expect. Indeed. I like it because I like Python, but it's not what I expect. <laughs> <laughs> so the as I say, the, the rest of it is is largely above and beyond my knowledge. It's a lot of a lot of detail on um, existing, you know, if you know this in R, this is what you do in Spark R. Um, it really winds up with uh, a set of a set of future directions of things that are happening um, in this space. So, uh, bringing um, a lot of lot of the more scalable machine learning algorithms from MLlib and exposing them in Spark R, mm-hmm. um, better better formula support for R, and just general improvements in in UDF performance. So. An interesting talk, much of it beyond me, um, but really, really interesting to see, you know, how some of these things are evolving and how they're changing. I also, always like, I also like the fact that I read little real details showing with co- with code examples. This yeah. is how you do it. So people that are running R and are not, perhaps not scared, but reluctant to go to this big data Hadoop environment. If you look at take a look at this, you'll see it's not as scary as you might think it is, and it's just uh, yeah, you have to. Keep in mind that you're not running on a single chassis, but on a cluster. Apart yeah. from that, uh, you should have a reasonably seamless uh, transition, if that's a word, as long as your cluster is set up correctly. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, yeah, very good session. Um, it's been delivered at other summits as well, so I would recommend taking a look at uh, one of the previous recordings of that um, if if you're uh, interested in that topic. Um, Casey's session, he actually did a couple of uh, live demos of various things as well, um, but I don't think he presented it previously. So it may be you may have a slightly different experience when you watch the uh, the YouTube links of other recordings. <laughs> Missing the Casey experience—it's a bad thing. Indeed. I Indeed, indeed. Okay. okay, so I think one a more. Lot of, yeah, I think I think so. Well, I think we might be able to get a couple more because I think the the next couple are going to be quite uh, quite yeah. light. We're already an because, hour in. Yeah. So the uh, the next one was around Kerberos troubleshooting, and I would really recommend if you're having problems with Kerberos, if it's your first time Kerberizing a cluster, two things. One. Follow the documentation. Read the documentation first before you do anything. Then read it again 
and then attempt to do it after watching and looking at these slides. Um, I don't think it's really worth going through this slide by slide um, because it's a lot of, um, you know, why Kerberos, um, how it works, and, you know, the different elements that are interesting or useful within Kerberos and how to debug it. So there's a lot of, you know, use these tools, try this, these are common error messages. Um, it, rather than going through it, I would say if that's something that's interesting to you, take a look at this session, take a look at these slides, um, and you, it should give you a very good uh, starter towards, um, you know, feeling more comfortable with Kerberized clusters. The other thing I would bring up is that at the very end, um, there's a set of links, uh, one of which is a GitHub link um, by uh, Steve Lochran, uh, who's uh, one of the guys within Hortonworks that's done a lot of work on um, Kerberos and Hadoop. And essentially, it's a, the, the link there is a link to a, a basically a book on Kerberos and Hadoop, um, which a lot of the hints and tips from this uh, these slides were kind of extracted from. So if you want to go even deeper than the contents in the slides, go and take a look at that link as well. So yes, books on uh, books on Kerberos and Hadoop uh, available on GitHub. Take a look at them. Thoroughly recommend it. So with that, we've uh, we've meandered our way through a couple of sessions already, but there's still more sessions to go. So I think we'll. Draw a line under it there, and you can uh, you'll hear the rest of it on part two of the Sydney DataWorks Summit recap. Oh, um, coming, one week in the future, indeed, coming in a week's time. But that's about all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back next week with part two of this episode. But until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information about the podcast, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact, contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs>